So to start uh, this morning, we're going to look at a picture on the screen. Does anyone know what this is, who this is, where this is? Yeah, this is Moses, right? This is a sculpture of Moses. Um, It's in Rome. It's created and was created by Michelangelo, and it's meant to depict Moses. It's pretty amazing. This thing, carved by hand, is over 12 feet tall, huge. It's one of like 40 different statues. Uh, Amazing. Masterclass, right? It really is incredible work. But if we were to take a closer look, this sculpture also is full of controversy. Controversy surrounds it. Can we go to one of the close-ups of the face? Specifically, this sculpture has raised questions about how we read the scriptures. What are you talking about, Silas? Well, does anyone know or notice anything strange about Moses' head? He's got horns. Moses has horns. And so, this is strange. What is this about? Why is this here? Well, in Exodus 34, when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, and then he walks down the mountain, and he goes to be with the rest of the people of Israel, this is originally written in the Hebrew language. And so, the text says, Moses... His face was Karen. Moses' face was Karen. The thing is, depending on how that word, Karen, is dotted in Hebrew, it can be translated to mean glow or horn. And so it's a pretty tricky thing to parse out, especially when you're dealing with old manuscripts that, you know, punctuation, sometimes the words were just all jumbled together. So it's hard to parse out. And so for, for within uh, Christian history, if you're an Eastern Christian, which means that you're probably reading Greek, the translators who translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek translated this word as glow, karen. So we have this idea of like Moses' face was radiant after he encountered God. And we see that echoed in Hebrews and over and over again. But if you are a Latin Christian, if you're on the West, when there's the transition from Hebrew scriptures to Latin to create the Vulgate, that's one of the translations that we have in Latin. It was commissioned by one of the popes. They, they, they translated this word, St. Jerome translated this word as horn when he read it. And what this did was create this large Renaissance area, this Renaissance era um, depiction of Moses as Moses having horns, everything changing on just the dotting of Karen, as that's translated from Hebrew into Greek, Hebrew into Latin. We have pictures of paintings as well, but it's fascinating that this one word can make such a difference in how we read it. So it raises questions about how we understand one little word and how that can change the entire meaning of a passage. Well, similarly, oh yeah, this is a, a, in in a, um, it's an icon, well, it's not 
actually the icon. It's underneath an icon describing what the icon would be. And notice, in this one, horns as well. And so you have this split between Eastern and Western Christianity in how they talk about this word. Today, in our passage in Luke, we read that there's one tiny word that changes how we read the text. And so, if you would, join me and look at two observations, and then we'll discover why all this matters at the end of the day. So, let's get after it. Our text begins by saying that Jesus has the power to heal, and then there is a group of friends who want to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. But when they can't get to Jesus because of the crowd, they go onto the roof, and they let him down right in the middle of the room. Jesus and the full crowd. He's lowered right there. And then we get to verse 20. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. It's at this point where if you grew up in my tradition, the rest of the sermon tends to focus on three things. One would be the importance of the faith community. So where two or three are gathered in his name, their God is also. And then two, the focus would be whether or not we have enough faith in God to act. Like, are you praying? Are you reading? Are you living the faithful Christian life? And then three, if that's not true, like if you're not doing those things, then come to the altar. The third point would be the altar call. Because the assumption was that if God isn't acting, well, then come to the altar and receive more faith. And we have this weird connection, this weird relationship between God acting and our agency. This type of reading is not uncommon either. It's not unique to the Pentecostal tradition. Have you ever heard anything like this before? In varying degrees, regardless of what Christian tradition you grew up in, if you've been at church, it is highly probable that you've heard a message that follows this kind of arc, that follows this kind of trajectory. But of course, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. It's manipulation. And it preaches, it fills, it creates this response, right? It manufactures a response, but that in and of itself is horribly damaging. So how might we read this verse then in more faithful ways? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. If you're following on in your outline or on the screen, here is our first observation. I want you to notice who is there and who is there. Who is there and who is there. In your Bibles, you might have a subheading for this passage, and it probably says something like, Jesus heals a paralytic man. The healing and forgiving of a paralytic. Jesus cures a paralytic man in his soul and his body. Does your Bible have a subheading like that? All of this is true. This happens in the story. These things do indeed happen. But the paralytic man is not the only one who is present in the story. 
There are other parts here. There are other parties here who are present in this passage. There are the four friends. They're there. This story doesn't happen without them. There's also the crowd that is made up of Pharisees and teachers of the law from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. This story doesn't happen without them. So let me ask you something. Who here has ever seen Grey's Anatomy? A lot of hands, right? Seattle, it's the Seattle thing. Any Grey's fans? So recently, Abby started watching it. Abby, my wife, is currently a hospital chaplain at Harborview. And I'll admit it, there are some episodes where she's been watching and she, uh, we'll be cooking dinner, and I just get sucked in. It's like the most captivating thing. I never would have thought that would have been a show. But it really, there's this thing with a plane crash that was riveting television. Uh, if you've ever watched an episode, it's pretty clear that the show is about Dr. Gray and the day-to-day dramas of the medical staff. The doctors are the main characters. They speak the most. The show unfolds, and we know where they're from. We see their interactions with everyone. And at the end of the day, again, it's abundantly clear. This show is about them. It is not about the patients that are present. So for the show to work, you do need to see some interaction between the patients, and you need some of the story. But again, first and foremost, this is about the doctors and the medical staff. So if there was an episode with a man who came in and he had foot fungus, or there was a man who came in who had a heart issue, we wouldn't change the name of the show to Foot Fungus Man. We wouldn't change it to Receiving Heart. That would be absurd. Those details contribute to the particular episode, but the point of the show remains. The show is about the doctors. So question for you. If we recognize how strange it is to make Grey's Anatomy all about the different patients in each episode, like to rebrand the show every time there's a different patient, how come we do just that when we read this section of Scripture? Zoom out for a second. Our passage today is the second of six consecutive incidents where the Pharisees respond to Jesus and his disciples with criticism. It's the second in a six-part episode. Six in a row. So from Luke 5.12 through to the end of Luke 6.1, we see Jesus trying to teach the Pharisees by answering their, question, by answering their questions and offering correctives to them. Six times in a row. Six stories where the Pharisees are present, Jesus does something, the Pharisees' worldview is challenged, and then Jesus offers a corrective, or he drops the mic, and then he moves on. And then we get another one. The same sequence of encounter actually happens in Mark, and scholars call this the conflict stories. The conflict stories. This is the backdrop for our, pack- for our passage today. So yes, it is true that this particular story this morning is about a paralytic man who is healed once his friends carry him to Jesus. But if they become the main focus of how we read this passage, we've just made peripheral characters 
from one episode the main characters of the whole show. Our passage this morning is one episode in a six-episode show that is really about how the Pharisees and teachers of the law continually misunderstand what Jesus is all about. Almost without fail, we read this passage and we get to verse 20 and we assume that when Jesus saw their faith, we think that Christ sees the positive, tangible, physically embodied expression of their faith from the paralytic and the four friends. This is not all bad. If we were to distill this down to a particular kind of truth, this truth might say, support others when they are in need. That's not a bad message to hear. Specifically in our community, we do things like meal trains, we pray for each other, we support each other in groups. These are ways that we try and do this because it takes a village. Life is hard. This is a good thing to take away from the text. What we don't want to do from this kind of reading, though, is argue that if they'd had enough faith, if they hit a certain threshold, then God acts. Like, we don't want to say that. There's so much wrong there. That's a rabbit trail that we could go down, but it's going to detract us. But ultimately, when we read their faith as the faith of the four friends, that inspires us to be good community members. That's the thing that we pull out from there. Be a good community member. Care for those in need. Lift up the paralyzed and live in such a way that you can bring others to Jesus. But remember, who is this story really about? The Pharisees and Jesus. And so we can read this same passage in another way by shifting how we understand one little word in verse 20. There, this passage takes on a whole new meaning. Take a look at verse 19. And finding no way to bring the paralytic in because of the crowd, the four men went up on the roof and let the man down with his bed through the tiles into the midst. Literally, the middle. Lowered him into the midst or the middle before Jesus. Into the midst or middle of what? Well, of the crowd. The crowd who is made up of whom? Pharisees, teachers, people of the law who have come from every village in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So watch closely now. Verse 20. And when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw the faith of the crowd, when Jesus saw the faith of the crowd made up of Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, whom Jesus had the power to heal, Jesus said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? We always read verse 20 as referring to the faith of the friends. And this reading serves to inspire us to be good community members. But when we read verse 20 as referring to the crowd of religious folk, the passage changes completely. 
Because then the passage becomes a critique of people who are supposed to be the most holy people in the land. The passage isn't about peripheral characters anymore. The passage becomes a story that describes how religious people fail to recognize or fail to receive the healing that Jesus is trying to bring them through their neighbor. And so if we say that the there in verse 20 refers to the four friends, again, we're invited to emulate those actions. But when verse 20 refers to the crowd of religious folk that the paralyzed man is lowered into, Christ in this passage isn't moved because he's impressed by the crowd. He's not impressed by the faith of the friends. Instead, when Jesus sees the faith of the religious folk, Christ is grieved. Christ is grieved that the most spiritual people from three major cities in Israel are so concerned about their own needs They're so concerned about hearing from God, from getting their time with Jesus. They're so concerned about getting something out of the gathering that a paralyzed man needs to be lowered through the roof just to get access. Do you see the irony that Christ is responding to right here? In their desire to hear from Jesus, these religious men make it so difficult for others to see Jesus that a paralyzed man needs to be lowered from the heavens to gain access. So observation one, who is there in the text and who is the there in verse 20? And how we're reading this morning, this passage is about religious folk. And today we're being asked to do better. Observation two, I want you to notice the missed invitations. The missed invitations. Take note of how the religious folk react to Jesus here. Verse 21, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This really stands out to me. It's really convicting to me. Because isn't it sad that when Christ acts in this story, the religious people immediately start arguing in the theoretical. That's their first move. They hear this, they see action in someone's life, and they immediately go to the theoretical. It's striking that The Pharisees do not address the man ever in the story. They never acknowledge the friends in the story. If you saw him earlier, if they saw him earlier in the story, he wasn't important enough for them to make room for him. And now when Jesus actually addresses him, points him out, they still refuse to see his humanity, to see his agency. They never address him. They never acknowledge him. He is overlooked and ignored from start to finish in this passage. The man is simply an object in a thought experiment for them that privileges their principles 
or their morality over the humanity that is right in front of them. And in their response, the Pharisees have squandered an opportunity for God to work in their own lives. Understand the gift that Christ has just offered the Pharisees. In this text, the cultural assumption that is present is if you're sick, it must be because of sin. I was talking to, um, I was talking to John earlier this week, and he referenced this exact idea in Job. In Job 8, we see this. Remember, Job, he suffers a whole bunch of things. And one of his friends says, it must be because there's something wrong. You've done something wrong. And there's a whole chapter where his friend is saying, well, this happened, so you must have done this. He lays out this whole trajectory. This is the undercurrent that exists in this passage. So with this worldview in mind, Jesus goes right to the source of this man's troubles and says, man, your, son, or your sins are forgiven. And he does this because reverse the logic. If Jesus can get religious people to care about this person's spiritual needs, perhaps they'll care about his physical needs too. The logic is reversed in what Jesus is trying to do in them. If the Pharisees have ignored the paralytic's physical needs, maybe it's because they were really concerned about his spiritual needs. But oh for two, they miss it again. Just how, like the Pharisees ignored the man's physical needs, they also ignore his spiritual needs. And instead, they argue about the legality of God's work in the life of the sinner without ever actually interacting with him. Unfortunately, this is not an isolated incident. In all six episodes, all six stories, this will happen again and again and again. Over and over again, Jesus will give them the space to join in his work of redemption. And over and over again, the religious people will fail to join him. From top to bottom, the Pharisees decline Christ's invitation to be creators of goodness. And instead, they perpetuate oppression because they have disordered priorities. So what are we supposed to do with this? What's the point? Why do these observations matter? Why do these observations matter? Let me come right out and say it. I don't like this reading. I don't like it. It was better when this was just a story about loving your neighbors like the four friends. It was a much easier story to read. Like that story I can get on board with. But how we understand one word changes everything, and the ramifications are far-reaching. Because in the way that we've read this morning, if you call yourself a Christian, this story 
is now a cautionary tale. And it says, this is how not to act. Don't live like the Pharisees. Don't follow their example. Jesus is offering invitations to you every day. Don't do what the Pharisees do. And the text asks us two challenging questions today. Two challenging questions. The first is, has my desire to know God actually been a hindrance to Christ's work in the world? Has my desire to know God more actually been a hindrance to Christ's work in the world? And then also, have I declined Christ's invitation to participate in the world's redemption because I value how I feel, my morality, over another person's humanity? Has that happened? In our present time, arguably more than ever, we live in a state of paralysis. We don't know what to do. We don't know who to trust. We don't know how to think. We've divided over everything. And there's mounting pressure to double down, right? To take a stand. Opinions about everything, from race, the impeachment, elections, separation of church and state, LGBTQIA plus inclusion, climate change, the economy. We are paralyzed by the sheer scale of everything that divides us. How do we move forward? How should we act? This is by no means a comprehensive answer. But I'm convinced that here is how we can start to move forward. And we can do that by doing this. The first is to take up a posture of humility. Without that, no progress will ever be made. Take up a posture of humility. Next is talk with someone who's different than you. Can we get that on the screen real quick? Talk with someone who is different than you, who has a different story than you. Talk with someone who's different than you. And the third thing, check your heart with these two questions. Check your heart. Has my desire to know God more actually been a hindrance to Christ's work in the world? Has my desire to be right kept others from God? Have I declined Christ's invitation to participate in the world's redemption because I value my morality over the humanity of others? Have I let my principles blind me and shut out everything else? Friends, start small. 
practice these three things once a week. It's the holiday season. You will be with family. Many of us will have opportunities, ample opportunities, to practice this. Once a week. Twice a week. Once a day. Every hour. Friends, call me idealistic. I'm young. Call me crazy, but can you imagine what the world could look like if this was the default of how we talked to our neighbors? Can you imagine that? Practice this, friends, and see how God begins to work in your soul and in your life. And don't be like the Pharisees this morning. Don't miss the invitation. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. Let us be initiators of goodness, especially this Christmas. And invite others to know God more. If we could have John and Addie. I recognize that today is not the lightest of sermons. But also, the world is not the lightest burden. And the things we experience in the world are not always light. If you would like to respond in prayer with someone, Margie will be there uh, over by the cross and is willing and happy to pray with you. If God has been stirring in you or brought something to your mind, reflect on that in prayer. Obey the Lord, friends. God is here. And we can leave here different from how we arrived this morning. Let me pray for us this morning, and then we'll respond in song. Holy God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment to know how to live in the world and faithfully represent your gospel, your justice, and most of all, your love. We need your help. And so, Lord, show us how we can do this in ways that make the world a reality and reflection of heaven on earth. Our faith is not one that makes us escape. But instead, you came down, and so much of that is the very essence of the Christmas story. As you came down into the depths of this world and began to change how it existed for millennia. Do that in us today and inspire us to do the same. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.